Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm Dale Willman. Today, our book club members are discussing David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. To introduce our conversation, here's Katie Royfe. Hi, this is Katie Royfe for Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm here today with Troy Patterson, Slate's television critic, and Jim Serwicki, a staff writer for The New Yorker. And today we're going to do our book club on David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. Before we begin, we'd like to take a moment uh, first to talk about our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible carries more than 50,000 audiobooks, which you can download right to the same device you have playing right now. And, Katie, as a special deal for book club listeners, if you sign up for a one-book-a-month membership, you'll get a free book as a thank you. We can discuss later whether or not it's ironic that we're uh, dealing with branding and advertising in a book that's... uh, Highly engaged with it. In any event, um, here's one suggestion for a book you could use as your free download. Uh, not this uh, behemoth before us, Infinite Jest, but a collection of reporting and essays by David Foster Wallace called Consider the Lobster, which I can't recommend highly enough. What do you think of it, Katie? Yeah, I think it's great. I think his nonfiction writing is really amazing. Um, and the address to visit to get your free book is www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. Should we get on with things now? Yes, I think so. (laughs) Today we're here to finally talk about David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. And it's sort of um, interesting timing since The New Yorker has just run a very intense biographical piece about Wallace. Um, And obviously there's a sort of renewed interest in this book and in uh, Wallace's work in general since his suicide. And Infinite Jest, when it came out in 1996 was a huge phenomenon. It was sort of the fashionable book, the work of genius, you know, the huge doorstopper that was kind of praised to the skies. And David Foster Wallace himself became a sort of icon of the new writer um, with his particular quality of innocence, hyper-intelligence, and stylistic gymnastics and innovations and fireworks. And so I think we want to talk about a lot of things here. I think we want to talk about David Foster Wallace's life a little bit, um, which we'll get to. And we also want to talk about his work. And I think one of the questions that comes up about this book is, did people really read all of it? We're talking about (laughs) it. We're talking about a thousand-page book with footnotes, you know, 1,100 pages almost. And also really whether he pulls off what he intends to do here and what the enormous scope and ambition of this book is. But first, let's start, I guess, Troy, can you give us a little, a little, I say little, a little plot summary of this enormous book? Like the synopsis of a synopsis? Yes. Um, well, where to start? The title of the book, uh, Infinite Jest, of course, a reference to a speech of Hamlet's, to uh Yorick's Skull, is the name of a movie within the book, um, directed by one James O. Incandenza. And the film, it is alleged, has this drug-like property that once you watch it once, you will sort of watch it forever to the exclusion of doing anything else and find yourself a drooling mess. The book is, in many ways, about addiction and compulsion and excess. So James Owen Condenza, in addition to being uh, an avant-garde or perhaps après-garde uh, filmmaker, uh, has founded a tennis academy in suburban Boston. He has, he's got three kids, all of whom have lived there. The oldest, Oren, is out of the house and uh, 
you know, he was never really going anyplace. He wasn't going to the show, to the big time, as a tennis player, and instead has become a star punter for the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, the second son, Mario, is uh, severely physically disabled, um, but he hangs out uh, around the the tennis academy, shooting film mostly, uh, taking after dad in that way. Um, and then the third uh, youngest son, Hal, is a tennis prodigy, is a kind of very hyperverbal OED memorizing kid who also smokes a lot of weed. Down, just down the hill from the Enfield Tennis Academy is a, is a halfway house uh, called Ennett House. Um, the people there are in Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, they've got all kinds of gnarly stories to share. Uh, and the central figure at Ennett House is a guy named Don Gately, this uh, former sort of junkie and burglar, an ex-football player himself uh, with this massive square block of a head. Uh, he was he's a kind of a graduate of of the facility and now is a staffer there meanwhile in the, in a kind of third sphere there are these uh quebecois separatists in wheelchairs uh who who um uh, well, now that i've mentioned the quebecois skeptic that uh, the quebecois separatists i probably ought to back up and mention that um the that North America has been entirely reorganized politically, and that there's a, this kind of supra-continental government, uh, and that sort of large parts of upstate New York and Vermont and New Hampshire are basically, would we call it a giant landfill? Toxic waste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A toxic waste dump called the Great Concavity. In any event, so these Quebecois separatists, they've got some beefs, and they, along with... Um, you know, covert government agencies are trying to get their hands on the film *Infinite Jest*, the drug-like film. And that's yeah, that's the book in kind of a nutshell. <laughs> I, I I feel I feel bad that I, I couldn't elegantly find a way to mention uh, a radio hostess named uh, Madame Psychosis, uh, who has other names too, and is a, a former lover of <clears throat> Orens the Punters and sort of a protege of James the directors and ends up in the halfway house where Don Gately works. Well, I mean, the thing that's interesting, obviously, just as you can tell, if you haven't read the book from the plot summary, it's 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 sort of hard to get your handle on the nature of the plot. There are actually a lot of different intersecting stories. And one of the things that's, I think, quite deliberate, but also in some ways quite frustrating for I think many readers about the book is that, uh, well, we can talk about it, but, but from my perspective, the, the plot strands are not really... Uh, in the first place, th- the intersections are not explicit in many cases. And then the other thing is that in many ways the story is not really resolved. Um, it's not exactly obvious what happens either to the the infinite just itself, to the film. Uh, we know that Hal kind of goes crazy. The, the Hal is sort of – Hal and Gately are the two main figures that Hal, the young tennis player, kind of goes crazy or – it's hard to describe exactly what happens, but he seems to have a kind of psychotic breakdown of sorts. It's not exactly clear why that happens. And so the book actually begins about a year after it ends, in a sense. And you get uh, about 10 pages of, of Hal a year later, and then that's it. You never really... And so so it's... It, it, let's just... At the very least, it's not a traditional novel in terms of the way it deals with, with story, I think it's safe to say. Yes, and I mean, I think that's that's one of the questions... One of the sort of amazing feats and also possibly failures of the book is that he sets out to do such, to create these intricate plots that Troy is is heroically enumerating. But in the end, 
I think there is no attempt to resolve them or even to do, you know, they do sort of intersect in interesting ways and they're all kinds of, you know, they're mesmerizing certainly, but in this traditional sense of resolving or, or how we think of, you know, finishing a book and kind of feeling as if it's over, you don't have with this book, which is obviously somewhat deliberate and part of its, you know, postmodern trick here, you know, it is the infinite jest that goes on and on and on forever and there is a sense, I think, of the juggler who throws the balls in the air that never come down. Um, And that is a frustrating feeling, but also certainly a central part of what this entertainment is about. Right. No, I I think that his his intelligence as a student of philosophy exceeds his intelligence as a storyteller. That said, on the their great sort of sweeping lyrical passages and set pieces, and even like nice little epigrams that um, kind of that keep you going. The book. Reading this book feels a little like, uh, felt to me, a bit like getting hit by a bus. Um, <laughs> and, and there's, uh, and you, it's so, it's, have we indicated the size of this book? Yes. Um, Say it again, though, because it's certainly part of what the experience part of reading of the, the experience book is like. the bus. Is, yeah, it's 981 pages with another Without footnotes, uh, yeah. 104 pages of uh, endnotes. Uh, the, he's, uh, you know, there are ways in which James Owen Condenza, the filmmaker in the novel, is at some points a surrogate for the um, for the author. And, and, uh, so there are these uh, among the footnotes is a wonderful uh, sort of filmography that uh, mentions any number of sort of uh, viewer hostile or reader hostile films. There's uh, how to put it. He, um, he enjoys giving us a hard time, but yet I, I found myself kind of unable to to stop to stop reading every time i thought that i had enough and wanted to skim there'd be some arresting image or really kind of beautifully nuanced passage about the motions of human consciousness that sort of drew my attention back yeah I, mean, I think that is the question is you know when you say this book is like being hit by a truck or a bus or something it is but what is it that still compels us to read I mean obviously all of us read it and you guys more than once um, what compel what is it that people love so much about this book because obviously you know this cult of David Foster Wallace that's emerged and and the warm reviews and everything else are um, skipping over the central fact that this book is kind of a mess right it's just pretty uncontroversially a huge mess. So what is it that saves it, you know, and it sort of rises like a phoenix out of this mess? What do you think, Jim? I'm not entirely convinced that it is saved, per se. I mean, um, and I mean, the interesting question about the mess is, you know, Wallace insists in interview, insisted in interviews that, I mean, first of all, the book was, I think the original draft was about 500 pages longer than the actual version. So something like either Michael Peach or Wallace together cut about 500 pages of it. And Wallace insists that everything is kind of... Because Michiko Kakutani in her review of the book in the Times actually said roughly it's a mess, basically. said mm-hmm. it's extraordinary, there's amazing passages, you know, da 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 And Wallace said, you know, um, well, look, all I can say is everything that's there was meant to be there, basically, which is sort of a fascinating mm-hmm. thing to say. And just to pick up on something Troy mentioned earlier about the Incandenza's dad, Hal's dad, you know, the, one, of the, one of the schools that uh, Incandenza goes through in his films is what he calls anti-confluentialism. And the way they just, that's defined is a, it's defined as a, a stubborn and possibly intentionally irritating refusal 
of different narrative lines to merge into any kind of meaningful confluence. And I think that that is kind of, at least to me, that's the way a lot of the book feels, is that you keep waiting for these stories to kind of come together in some way. And for the most part, they they don't. And, and what's even stranger is that there's a line uh, on the third page of the book, I think. No, not the third page. On the... It's page... Uh, on page 17, which is at the end of this sort of big opening passage where, where Hal, a year after the rest of the book takes place, is sort of has this psychotic breakdown or whatever it is. And, and he makes a reference to Donald Gately and he and another tennis player doing this actually quite would be a very powerful thing in terms of the narrative point of the plot. But you see, there's no other reference to that. There might be one other reference to it in the book. And <laughs> so you never actually get this kind of narrative payoff. You just get this sort of vague hint. And if you're not reading... There's no reason most people would even get that because you don't even know who these characters are until much later in the book. So it's just this kind of oblique thing. So I, Wallace, in his writing and in his interviews, talked a lot about these two, ten, two, two tendencies. One was kind of, you know, Troy as a television critic, television as as pure entertainment, that television made things way too easy for people, that the television allowed, was so enjoyable that it just allowed you to just be this very passive consumer. And then the other tendency was the tendency of the, like, of, of postmodern literature, which was the incredibly difficult, actually literally, like, I'm going to make this so hard, you know, I'm going to actually deliberately make you angry, in a sense, and, and to, I'm going to make you prove that you really want it. And Wallace said he was trying to do go between those, that he wanted to kind of be neither over-the-top, incredibly difficult, or be easy. I think this book tends to go a little too much toward the form, toward being overly difficult in a way. But I think it's balanced by the thing that does redeem it in, to the extent that is what Troy talks about. I mean, a lot of the book is incredibly... The passages are amazing. It's, you know, really the language is extraordinary. It's quite funny. I, I didn't actually find it that funny, but a lot of people find it very funny, I think, you know, that they find the gags and the kind of jokes very funny. So I think those are all things that people are responding to. Well, and I think, I mean, I think his, I mean, I really would say like obsessive compulsive gift is about taking things apart, taking the entire world apart in a yeah. way and analyzing it in a way that is so brilliant and so beyond what a normal, and I would probably think healthy person, person would walk yeah. around their world being able to do that you yeah. just can't look it's something about and, and i really do think it's it's something destructive it's like taking apart every single thing um and not stopping um and i you know i, I read a syllabus he wrote for his class that he taught um at pomona and it's a really fascinating document and it was really to me incredibly moving and sad because he actually took instead of just writing a syllabus like every professor who's ever taught anywhere does and just doing the form he analyzes every moment of it like what do office hours mean what does it mean if you get a C when you should come and see him and instead of just accepting these human relationships and just the sort of assumptions of a university and the way a class works he takes everything apart to such an extent it's almost painful because you do think, like, how can a person like this exist in the world? Right. On and the, on the other, on the other hand, brilliant. isn't going to university supposed to be about <laughs> learning how, about precisely that kind of interface, critical thinking about the world around you? Yeah, but it's like the, his level is so far above what normal people, you know, just 
think about, you know, that the way that he thinks, or if you read um, another great essay of his is a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again about the cruise ship that he published originally in Harper's, in which he takes this banal occasion of the cruise ship. And I actually think in his nonfiction, it's sort of more, his gift is more luminously on display in a consistent way. But he takes apart this cruise ship experience to such an insane extent that he actually takes this totally plotless, like boring, banal experience and turns it into this something amazing, really amazing piece of art. And I think it's that I guess maybe I could read a little passage here to just show how he does it with the um, one of the, the parts that I was most drawn to here was the the part, the sort of AA part about the rehab house. And on um, just read a little bit of it. On page 200. If by virtue of charity or circumstance of desperation you ever chance to spend a little time around a substance recovery halfway facility like Enfield MA state-funded Annette House, you will acquire many exotic new facts. You will find out that once MA's Department of Social Services has taken a mother's children away for any period of time, they can always take them away. DSS, like it will, empowered by nothing more than a certain signature stamped form, i.e. once deemed and fit, no matter why or when, or what's transpired in the meantime, there's nothing a mother can do. That, a little mentioned paradox of substance addiction is that once you are sufficiently enslaved by a substance to need to quit the substance in order to save your life, the enslaving substance has become so deeply important to you that you will all but lose your mind when it is taken away from you. Or sometime after your substance of choice has just been taken away from you in order to save your life as you hunker down for required AM and PM prayers, you will find yourself beginning to pray to be allowed literally to lose your mind, to be able to wrap your mind in an old newspaper or something and leave it in an alley to shift for itself without you. I'm skipping a little. That most substance-addicted people are also addicted to thinking, meaning that they have a compulsive and unhealthy relationship with their own thinking, that the cute Boston AA term for addictive-type thinking is analysis paralysis, that cats will, in fact, get violent diarrhea if you feed them milk, contrary to the popular image of cats and milk, that it is simply more pleasant to be happy than to be pissed off, that 99% of compulsive thinkers' thinking is about themselves, that 99% of this self-directed thinking consists of imagining and then getting ready for for things that are going to happen to them. And then, weirdly, that if they stop to think about it, that 100% of the things they spend 99% of their time and energy imagining and trying to prepare for all the contingencies and consequences of are never good. (laughs) That this connects, interestingly, with the early sobriety urge to pray for the literal loss of one's mind. In short, that 99% of the head's thinking activity consists of trying to scare the ever-living shit out of itself. Well, I think that that idea of kind of the compulsive analysis and the analysis paralysis is something I think you can argue. I mean, obviously, it's part of what this book is about. It's also, I think, part of what Wallace was wrestling with. I mean, you could argue his whole life in a way. I mean, and I think it applies. I mean, I'll only say this and then move on. But um, I think it actually applies partly to his analysis of of, of human relationships. And I think it's that that kind of – while I think the stuff about the syllabus actually sounds kind of interesting because that does – there's a way in which he – He's just not able to fully accept either his own or or goodness or potential goodness or the goodness of others. That there's this kind of like endless interrogation that I think – it sounds like in his life was made, made it very difficult. And I think in the book it – anyway, but so. 
just leave it there. I don't never able to accept. What about like uh, Mario? Well, no, Mario is the great exception. I, I agree. Mario is the great is the great exception. Actually, Mario is like my favorite character in the book. But he's know? also like ill and compromised. No, but Mario and... is. A, I think Mario is the. Uh, the I, I actually wish there was much more of Mario in the book. You should say something about it. Um, it's great he's he's a sweetheart. Uh, yeah. M- Mario again is the is the second of uh, James Owen Condenses three children, uh, and he's kind of you know severely physically disabled. But he's so generous and so patient and so understanding, and he's like this. He's got the spirit of charity. There's a scene pretty late in the book where uh, sort of the man who ends up becoming the, I guess, is he the head trainer at the tennis yeah. academy, had sort of on a bet with his Jesuitical brother and sort of uh, pretended to be a homeless man, what, outside of like Boston South Station, someplace like that. Yeah. And that in his weeks and months out there, the only person who would touch him. He would so, say to people walking by, will yeah. you touch me? That's all he would ask for. And then, right, go ahead. So no one. Yeah, yeah no. That, that, and no that, one would except Mario. Actually, he says to Mario, Mario comes up and shakes his hand, basically. Yeah. This is great. It is. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible right. story. It's beautiful. No, no, I think you're right. I mean, Mario is, I kind of wish there were, in a way, I kind of feel like, I just wish there were more of him in the book. But I, that's just me. I'm kind right. of a sap, so I can't. <laughs> well, the human relationships in this book are incredibly arduous and almost non-existent. And cartoonish and gimmicky, you know, and they sort of even like there's that one scene where the guy is, you know, in the in the in his the rehab house, and he's like, "Should I talk to the other guy? Like, should I go out and talk to him and be friends with him?" And it's so it's like this long thing about you know just this basic conversation becomes such a daunting endeavor. And I think, you know, it's it's almost, um, it's just painful, the approach of what, or the flirtations here. You know, they're right. so painful. But see, I wouldn't say that was, I don't think that part of it is actually cartoonish. I actually think he's saying that's how these people actually live. Like, he's saying it really is this arduous for them, that that, that is what that whole analysis paralysis. I mean, I agree. I think yeah. they are arduous. They are. But Yeah. It's just a very dark view of human relationships here you know well again not entirely i think that i think that part of what you're responding to is that he's not sort of especially good with with romantic love but i think that as a book about sort of patrimony and about fraternity it's it's really interesting not just the 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 sort of the brotherhood of the the three little brother the three literal brothers but the the kind of uh the young gang at the at the tennis academy, I find there, there's something heartening to what they do, and also the sort of the the fellowship among these recovering addicts um, is demonstrated as something that's really real and sustaining. And despite the all the cliches that they teach you in a twelve step program, uh, he, you know, one of <laughs> Wallace's projects here was to um, to sort of invest cliches with some the thrill of some meaning, some fresh meaning. I also want to um, – that was a great passage that you just read before. I, I dog-eared it. And it also um, – the analysis paralysis kind of stands in uh, contrast to these passages where he talks about sort of being in the zone as a tennis player, sort of on the, on the court, and you're this kind of zen state, right, of just being and – of just simply being – and so not only is he hyper-perceptive, it's also a book about perception. There are lots of, like, lenses and screens. And, you know, last time we did this, we talked about Rabbit Run. 
And I wish that I'd mention how uh, Updike does interesting things with doors in that book, because it's a book about leaving. It, it's, he does interesting things with doors the same way that any good production of A Doll's House is going to do interesting things with doors. <laughs> David Foster Wallace here does a lot of things with windows. I, I'd love to see if anyone's like written... How many people have written academic they papers probably, on some, this? I'm sure someone has. Sure someone has. There's a window in the first paragraph and a window in the last one and hundreds of them in between and interesting defenestrations. And the guy gets frozen to the window. guy gets frozen to a window. At some point, Oren in, out in Arizona talks about the, the windows are like high beams coming at you. Right. I mean, it's interesting. You know, you mentioned, it's interesting you mentioned the tennis stuff because I, I, I know. I mean, I you know was reading some of the critical stuff on this and just like people online and stuff. And a lot of people find when people talk about well, what could be cut from the book, they say, well, we, I think I could deal with less of the tennis stuff, which for me is actually like some of the best parts of the book. I mean, I have to say, I mean, one of the challenges for me in reading Infinite Jess, and I've actually read it twice now, is that is that kind of informal terms, and and I think even in terms of. Uh, to some extent, even in terms of the, of the content, the substance, it, it's really a long way away from the kind of book I normally like. So, I mean, Wallace sort of famously, you know, he talked about he just had a real soft spot for gags and kind of for this, like, incredible, like, these set pieces, these sort of incredibly overwritten set pieces. And it's so different from what, I mean, I, I've, you know, I've read most of the big postmodern novels, but it's just not, it's not kind of, it's not kind of my thing. And 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 even in terms of substance, one of the questions I really have is, a lot of what Wallace is trying to do in this book, and I think in, in all of his, especially the later books, is he's trying to get to something real. It's exactly, you know, invest cliches or try to get to emotion. But he's so, it's only, he's so afraid, in a way, of sentiment, I think, or of being sappy. I think actually in the, in the New Yorker piece, there's actually a line, a line about that. It always has to be refracted. Oh, no, not always, but almost always has to be kind of refracted in some you know, complicated way. And, and, and I, I mean, I feel this way much more than this book is, is his short story collection, Oblivion, which I find just uh, unbelievably bleak and, and, and difficult to read. But, um, but sometimes I sort of feel like that the payoff, the actual, whatever the actual sentiment you get, isn't quite dazzling enough an insight to actually justify the work he puts me through in a sense, mm-hmm. if that makes, if that makes sense at all, that yeah, it's yeah. like, I mean, he's amazing, you know, verbally and blah, blah, blah. I just – but but somehow I feel like if that's the takeaway, you know, that Mario is great and has charity and da, 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 It's like do we need all the rest of it to see that? I mean, I think Wallace kind of th- th- thinks we do. I- I'm just not sure I really buy it if that makes sense. Yeah, I sort of agree with you. I mean, part of me reading this book was like d- did feel – one of the things that frustrates me is the gimmicks and the showiness. Like, for instance, the fact – that um, Hal's father, James, kills himself by exploding his head in a microwave oven. You know, just those bazillion things like that, which are like his jokes or, you know, his gimmicks and all of that and the exhaustion of it. And then there are these amazing riveting passages. Um, You know, to me, the AA passages, some of the tennis passages. And, you know, it does feel like, is it worth it? You know, sometimes. Um, But, Troy, you look skeptical, so... Um, yeah, now, this is kind of the book that sort of inspires these, this kind of fractally associative thinking, so I can't even remember what I was looking I know, it's true. We're all about. a little bit incoherent, rendered incoherent yeah. in speeches like the well, just so people watching about, the right? inter- yeah. infinite chess. I think that when, yeah. when, when you were making that last point, I started to wonder if, if part of the problem with uh, the book um, 
trying to find some solid – to excavate something interesting emotionally um, by way of this uh, full postmodern apparatus. It's a little bit like a um, like the, a problem that often happens in Charlie Kaufman films, right? right. There's yeah, yeah, this, yeah. this kind of attempt to get to something that's sort of sentimental in a good way through this sort of heavy artifice and right. doesn't quite – get to the, into the end zone. Yeah, that's what you kind of want. I mean, I, it's, you know, I mean, there's, Wallace has this whole argument and, and he's made in interviews and pieces that, you know, obviously the, he and other people like him were very influenced by the post, the first postmodernists. So Gaddis and William DeLillo. Gass and Pynchon and maybe in early DeLillo. I mean, DeLillo's I think is slightly different, but he certainly was influenced by him, I think. But, it, you know, the, a lot of that early work was really coming out of an explicit rebellion against kind of 50s conformism about a kind of very <laughs> traditional idea of literature and blah, blah, blah. And, and I think was actually really questioning, really had this notion that the system had kind of erased personality in a way. That if you actually read Pynchon or Gaddis, the individual kind of, I mean, certainly in Gravity's Rainbow, the individual basically almost disappears. I mean, it's like at the end, I mean, Slothrop literally disappears. And, 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 and the thing that's interesting about Wallace is he has all the postmodern apparatus, as you said, but he clearly doesn't quite believe that the individual or true emotion has really disappeared. I mean, he thinks it's struggling to overcome advertising and blah, 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 blah. But the AA stuff is pretty, er- I mean, pretty yeah. earnest. I mean, he thinks that there is a person underneath it all, really. And, mm-hmm. and, and yet... Let me just say one last, I'll just say read one last, let me just read a short passage, which is on page 592. And it's actually Mario um, talking about emotion. And, and he says, the older Mario gets, the more confused he gets about the fact that everyone at the academy over the age of about Kent Blot finds stuff that's really real, uncomfortable, and they get embarrassed. It's like there's some rule that real stuff can only get mentioned if everybody rolls their eyes or laughs in a way that isn't happy. And in a way, he's kind of saying, you know, that's kind of the whole point about art as well, that it's just increasingly hard to find valid art that's about stuff that's real in this way. And I guess I'm just not sure I really think it has to be, but I think Wallace really thinks it is in some, like, deep, deep sense. And I think that tension is what animates the, is really, is what's animating this book, is, you know, kind of... I want things to be true, but I don't quite necessarily believe they are, and I can't write about them. I don't, I don't know, anyway. So. Yeah, it's sort of a Hamlet problem. I mean, one thing that I, I think it's, it's almost impossible now coming to the book, as I said at, at the beginning, not to think about Wallace and his life. You know, now that so much has sort of come out about, oh, yeah, totally. about his kind of pain, you know, and, and the way that he lived. And I think, um, you know, I just wonder if you have any thoughts about just reading this book through back through what's happened to him and what what his what we now know about his life. I mean, one detail that I thought was really interesting about in the New Yorker piece was when he said that somebody asked him why he wore his bandana and he said um, because he felt otherwise his head was going to explode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just, you know, it's it, it's just it's interesting because you see that reflected in this book a little bit. You know, that feeling of his head going to be explode. You know, if if anybody's head is going to explode, it's definitely David Foster Wallace's. But did you have any – I mean, I also think there was that, that moment. There's a woman who's very depressed. There's that brief scene where she's so depressed that she she's in so much pain that she wants to kill herself and she can't describe it to the doctors and they're in this um, – You're talking about Kate Gomper? Yes. Maybe? Yeah. And it's very brief. 
but it's an incredibly vivid scene about what it's like to be depressed that yes. I think describes depression in a way that we're not used to thinking of it, which is in this as this sort of active, constant, almost physical pain that's so unendurable that you have to kill yourself. Yeah. And it seemed, you know, I found the passage really chilling when I read it, not because of him necessarily, but just it seemed to me was such a sort of dark view. Yeah, I'm, I, I kind of <laughs> want to sort of tread carefully on this territory because I, I think it's a little easy to be glib about it. It's kind of like drawing connections between the life and the death and the work in a venue like this. And also, it, it bugged me a little the... I thought that the the New Yorker piece was a little was somewhat unsuccessful in that I think it implied too strong a correlation. It it, it argued a little too much for like a biographical reading of his work. Right, and which I don't, is always I don't, too simple. Right, right, right. And so I don't want to I don't want to read this book through the lens of David Foster Wallace's depression any more than I want to read The Wasteland through Eliot's. Which is to say, just enough. I don't know. Well, I mean, this is a different point I thought before, but I, but I do think it becomes you know maybe clearer. And so, I mean, I think this is an incredibly sad book. I mean, the funny thing about <laughs> it is, if you look at the if you look at the reviews, it's like you know wickedly comic, rollicking, That's blah great. blah blah. And I mean, I just think it's just like overpoweringly sad book. Um, and you know, Gately, the Don, the the staff member at the um, uh, at that at the halfway house, does kind of make a journey over the course of the book and, and kind of change his life, but of course ends up, you know, uh, maybe dying or certainly, you know, incredibly sick after being shot um, on, on a bed. But I think this is a very, I mean, and Wallace said, I mean, in, this is an interview he did in 96 with Salon and said, you know, I, I think it's about a particular kind of sadness. I think it's a very, very, very sad book. Uh, on the other hand, I think the book that real where you really feel this sense of you know, if you want to read the life into the work, the book where that's really clear is Oblivion. I mean, that book is just, I mean, is, pure uh, blackness, I think. Is uh, The Depressed Person in that one? Or you know, is that I, in I brief think that's, I think it's in brief interviews, actually. Yeah. But Oblivion is almost all about, basically, you know, depressed people, suicide. I mean, it's just... Um, but I do think this just book is haunted. It's haunted mm-hmm. by, uh, you know, this kind of right. sense of analysis, this difficulty of kind of real connection, <laughs> a sense of over amazing sense of loneliness... Um, I mean, Hal at one point says, and this is obviously a fairly familiar thing to, for a young man to say in a book, but, you know, inside Hal, there's pretty much nothing at all. And, mm-hmm. you know, he constantly is trying to feel, and, and you look at Hal and you're like, why? You, you're 17. You've got a, you know, pretty, seem like a pretty good life. You're a great athlete. You have this brother who loves you and da, 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 da. And I mean, whatever. He has a very complicated family. But anyway, I, I, so that would be the part of it that to me strikes me is just how sad this book is. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think David Foster Wallace is now um, just at this moment in the afterlife of David Foster Wallace. He's a sort of in danger of you know, the Sylvia Plath phenomenon of, of his suicide be eclipsing his work. In part, I think, because his work being so difficult and actually, you know, loved yet um, impossible. I think that the idea of him as a person and as this doomed person, you know, is good. It, it definitely, I just feel like it struck a chord. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but I just feel people are, it does strike a chord, this like <laughs> suicidal, you know, 40-something writer, just as he's always kind of struck a chord. Um, and I think partly he seems to reflect for this certain generation a kind of innocence. Um, in the same, you know, in a certain way, the same way Sylvia Plath just captured a lot for that 1950s, especially for women, um, in what she stood for. And I do think, you know, 
to the extent that her death kind of eclipsed her work. Right. Um, that's that could happen here with David Foster. Right. Charles. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like there there was sort of a a legend around him when he was alive that he sort of embodied a, a kind of artistic purity mm-hmm. that is rare to be found in these degraded times. And there is like certainly a truth to that, but at the same time, he's, he was already a saint before the martyrology began, you know? It's, but see, I don't totally get that, because I, I don't... I mean, the artistic purity, I mean... I mean, I don't really see artistic purity here. I see, like, extreme showiness. I see a lot of talent. I don't... I don't, well, I don't something, there's something In his nonfiction, be... I get the purity, well, the purity more no, than I here. Think, but I think what Troy's talking... I mean, I would think what Troy... I mean, it's purity in the kind of Pynchon-esque sense, right? That he, like, went right. away and locked himself off in normal Illinois and or whatever. And just couldn't right. live... Wrote a thousand. Well, life. but he didn't. I mean, and he wrote a, a thousand-page book that worked, right? I mean, that became right. a huge hit. That's in a pretty amazing. This is an whatever you want to say about this book. It's a pure book in the sense of it's it's not compromising for because one of the things we haven't even mentioned about the book from a reader's perspective is you know it, it's not just a thousand pages. It's a thousand big pages. Yeah, it really a thousand is. large, closely yeah. printed and, pages. Yes, and with paragraphs that go on. I mean. It, and it doesn't even divide yeah. the paragraph. It's not even like there are a lot of paragraphs. This is like just these incredibly – it is a very hard – just physically a very hard book right. to read. So I think that, that – I mean the one thing I think in terms of the it, the suicide overshadowing his life is – I mean I, I do think it will have an impact. I, I do think – and I know this is a cliche, but I, I actually think this is, is true – is that um, – and you've already mentioned it – that Wallace's nonfiction – I think is going to live for forever. I mean, I think that. I mean, not, these all these books will live forever. But the nonfiction is almost none of the things we have said. I think about this book are true of the nonfiction. I mean, well, the best of them are. Yeah. Well, actually, right. I mean, the nonfiction is like is difficult, but it is like it, 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 it's unusual in terms of its form and stuff. But it's. Um, uh, you know, I just think extraordinary. It's extraordinarily well, the, well Yeah, there's it's, there's a greater clarity, I think, and also the I think the fact of having to sort of excavate a narrative rather than uh, build one from scratch right. uh, leads them to do much more muscular storytelling. Yeah, but yeah, and it also and his I think his brain is was uh, his sensibility was more analytic than mm-hmm. the narrative. Um, but yeah, as a journalist, I think he's in a class with like John McPhee and Joan Didion and Tom Wolfe and yeah. not too many other people. Well, and I think yeah, yeah, no, I think that's the, right. I mean, I also think that what's what's ma- a little bit maddening about this book is that if you took out the best passages of this book and the really beautiful passages of this book, and I agree with Troy, the gift is like analysis, not fiction writing as we think of it, not necessarily like storytelling and character and that kind of thing. But I do think if you took the best passages out of this book it matches the best of anyone. You know, I do. I really do. But I just, the problem is that is that having to go in there and, and go through everything it else. Does, are, do you ever, did you have the experience of, like, reading sentences in this that you're sure were, like, in Ulysses or something? Oh, no, really? <laughs> I mean, not... Uh, it, it's, it's that feeling. Not, it's that, yeah, yeah. It is. I mean, I don't know. My older sister said something about him which I thought was interesting. She said um, that... Only men write this way, and men write this way because um, she. This was her analysis. She said they want to like build things. They want to build something. They want to be like the guy who built, you know, the <laughs> bookshelf. But they just aren't that guy. They're like the nerdy bookish guy who can't build anything. So this is what they do to compensate for that, <laughs> you know, that that frustration and that to prove their masculinity, they have to like build a. But book why do like they want to build it so? 
big and over because that's like how you show your masculinity is like big built this really big thing and I mean there's a little bit of that feel to it like I do feel like women don't write books like this um, and a woman would not write this book that's probably that's and there is something of that like proving quality you know there's something in. but what do you think he's trying to prove I mean what is it well her point is like this certain masculinity and I think it's there, it, there's a sh- there's a look at me, look at me quality to it. You know, there's like a it in that showiness that is sort of, um, you know. Again, right, well, listen, is, is it wrong to want to be looked at? Uh, well, well, let me read you this. this. That's why I just I'm not getting the purity from the novel somehow. But so, so this is this is from an interview that Wallace did, um, which actually I highly recommend uh, in '93 uh, um, in the Review of Contemporary Fiction, which was where this famous essay he wrote called E Pluribus Unum about, or is it E Unum Pluribus about television appeared, and uh, there was an interview with him in there, and he says two things that are very interesting. This is before Infinite Jest. I mean, I think he was already working on it, but he says uh, he was talking about his short story Westward. Um, goes the course of empire, which is this very metafictional story. That's the last story in Girl with Curious Hair. He says, here, here are my biggest weaknesses as a writer. One is that I have a grossly sentimental affection for gags, for stuff that's nothing but funny and which I sometimes stick in for no other reason than funniness, which is clearly, I mean, there's a whole, there are endless pages of that in this book. And the other is that I, another is that I have a problem sometimes with concision, communicating <laughs> only what needs to be said in a brisk, efficient way that doesn't call attention to itself. You're like, yeah, I guess that is. is. But then what he says at the end is he says, he says, it's interesting. Sometimes when I look at my own stuff, I feel like I absorb too much of television's raison d'etre, which is to be liked. I'll catch myself thinking of gags or trying formal stunt pilotry and see that none of this stuff is really in the service of the story itself. It's serving the rather darker purpose of communicating to the reader, hey, look at me. Hey, look at what a good writer I am, like me. And this is exactly what you said. And this is what I think is so interesting about this book, and I actually think about a lot of Wallace's fiction, is that he couldn't quite ever be the writer he wanted to be, that he always was partly trapped by these or whatever you you are who you are in a way and that that's what what's in what you know i think that's a lot of what what you're talking about basically is you know you get, i mean he's saying it about himself you know three years before the book actually appears yeah and i mean it is one of the things um that is endearing about him that's like one of his most appealing qualities is that self-consciousness i mean his his total awareness of who he is and you know what it means to be david foster wallace you yeah. know almost, almost like impossible painful awareness of that yeah. but i think you're right i mean and that's and i guess that's what i'm objecting to is that look at me look at me um which never allows you or never allows him to create something like a story that we can you know, care about or get immersed in or even bothers to resolve itself. Well, can I say one other thing? The last thing, the, the flip side of that that he talks about also, which is very interesting, <clears> is he <throat> says one of the the ways, the perverse ways in which this desire to be like manifests itself is you get hostile toward the reader and you start as a writer and you start to say like, well, screw you. Why do I, why should I care if, if you like me? I'm going to do stuff that's really hard for you. That's going to be really difficult. And that I think is also going on in this book too. Right. This kind of mm-hmm. like war on the reader in it's a like way. Performance art, like watching a Bruce Nauman video or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and it is actually about a work of art that is destructive, right. that harms you, right. that actually like does destroy the reader. So, in a way, that that sadistic fantasy is there. Yeah. Um, and when you want to, when you want someone to love you enough, you hate them. You yeah. Know? Well, that's what he sort of yeah. says at one point. In right. Yeah. I, I mean, there is a sense in which, although there are many ways in which this book does not succeed 
I'm pretty sure that it succeeds in the most fundamental way for a book that's largely about perceptions and substance abuse and ways of philosophy is that it uh, it changes the way you think. Like, my my head has not been right for the last week that I've been... <laughs> that's sort of true. I think that's true. I mean, true. in a good way. It, it's like coming out of a movie, and a good movie, and all the people on the street look more interesting. Sort of the way he engages with human consciousness is... Kind of refreshes my understanding of it. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think that's the, um, you know, that's the the thinking. He does the think the deep thought that goes into this book and analysis that goes into this book. I think you're right. That is sort of the effect of it, and that is a that is a strength of this book, un- undeniably. Right. I would also like to say, uh, apropos of the, the the bit from the interview, going back through the book again this morning on the subway, one of the the epigrams uh, I noted was, um, uh, "Talent is its own expectation." Um, That's really interesting. Yeah. A couple of questions I had for you because the things that I think are kind of specific to the way the book works. One is um, this kind of hyper realism that he does in terms of. You talked a little bit about it in terms of his an- analysis, but he actually does it with kind of the the <coughs> physical world. So. I'll just read. I won't. I'll just allude to. There's a passage when this woman is actually trying to sort of kill herself by basically smoking as much crack as possible. I think because that's what she's doing in the bed in the bathroom, right? And it's on two thirty nine, page two thirty nine, and and someone's knocking at the door, and he says, "The bathroom door, composed of thirty six, that's three times a lengthwise twelve, recessed two beveled squares, and a warped rectangle of steam softened wood, not quite white." The bottom outside corner right here, raw wood and mangled from hitting the cabinet's bottom drawer's wicked metal knob. Through the drawer, an offset red and glowering actors and calendar and very crowded scene and pubic spiral of pale blue smoke from the elephant-colored rubble of ash and little blackened chunks in the foil funnel's cone. That's the crack pipe. The smoke's baby blanket blue that slant her sliding down along the wall past knotted washcloth, washcloth, towel rack, blood flower wallpaper, and intricately grimed electrical outlet, blah, 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 blah. Actually, reading out loud actually sounds quite nice, but there are a lot of passages like this that are just incredibly hyper-realist descriptions of the world. And I guess part of my question is, the question I had was, why? Like, at what, or maybe at what point can you say, okay, I get it. You're looking really, really closely. You need to do it 50 or 60 times. There's a whole another one when somebody's walking upstairs inside the building. It's like the amount of psychosis piece. I just, I'm just, it's, I just can't quite figure out exactly what he's trying to do. Right. Well, I guess it's the, it's what, what Troy was talking about before is that radical disorientation right. where the, that effect that you're looking at the world differently, you're literally looking at the world differently. Right. And, you know, so that your eyes are open and you see things that other people don't even see. But and does this is, actually make you see, the, see that room differently? Uh, problem, or does it look kind it. of like the room, like what you kind of think a room would look like? I like it, but I'm kind of a sucker for, like, that sort of, like, French new novel trick. Right, 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 the, right, right. The extreme description. Right, right, this right, is yeah, that yeah, whatever, with, right, right. With big, thick paintbrushes. Right. And maybe it also speaks to, um, you know, it's worth saying that that's, that, that character is... Um, Madame Psychosis, right. who is a or has been a film student and whose friends are film students, and that right. um, that kind of writing is almost explicitly about I think his anxieties about the role of the novel in uh, a culture of visual media. I right? think that's right. I think that's right. I think that, and I think that animates the whole that there, that's running through a lot of the book is this question of yeah. Well, I think that's right. 
Well, the other question I had, which is somewhat connected, is not really connected, but one of the odd things about the book, um, well, it's not odd, but in terms of why it's so long and the best passages, there are long sections of this book that have nothing to do with any of the major characters that are literally, I mean, you know, in fact, the second second passage of the book after the the whole Hal thing is about a character uh, who's a, a, strangely enough, a marijuana addict, which I actually didn't really realize they were full on, they full on, but he's really addicted to marijuana. And it's, you know, like, how long is it? It's about 12 pages, 10 pages from 17 to 27. And it's a character who does end up at the halfway house, but who literally, you know, is a very minor character for the rest of the book. It's Ken Ergody, I think, or I don't Mm. know if Ken is the right word. And, And there's a lot of that through the book, these characters who just have these, and Wallace is not the first novelist to do this. I mean, there are a lot of novelists who do it. But, again, it's sort of interesting to me from a formal perspective that you would devote so much attention and space and to characters who we don't really, you know. Who, yeah. I don't know. I think it's uh, – I can imagine that partly being sort of motivated by something humane, which is to let the Rosencrantzes and Gildersterns of the world have their peace. Right. There's – where is it later on that <clears throat> there's a whole discussion about, like, the extras on uh, – Yeah, the figure Cheers, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, that's with uh, James's ghost and uh, and Gately, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why, why shouldn't the figurants right. have their – That that may be actually – maybe that's a good – that's a good – that maybe that is what it is, yeah. Because I saw it especially with the whole poor to- Tony, the transvestite, like those long, long, uh, horrible passage in the bathroom and everything. And But I think you are right. I mean, I think that's what he is trying to – because one other thing about the book that is uh, – for me is hard, but I think for a lot – the number of people in this book who are grotesque in some form or another, deformed yeah. <laughs> or have diarrhea, or I mean, it's amazing the number of people. And and I think you know this is part of Wallace trying to say they're still human beings, basically, you know, in some like basic sense. But it is interesting. This it is kind of amazing the sheer number of deformities and you know not just psychological but physical that you go through in this book. A lot of deformities, but very few gargoyles. I think right. generally in the right. handling of. Them. Yeah, no, no, no. That's true. That's true. But I do. I mean, I think this the 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 long parts of the plot that have nothing to do with the plot, you know, are part of his refusal of storytelling. You know, an almost like willful desire to bedevil the reader. You right. know, in a way that that put it. You know, and and again, this goes to that. You know, I think one final point, which is just, what do you have at the end of this book? What does it all add up to? Because we all agree there are these sort of miraculous and amazing parts. But, you know, I think the fact that he doesn't really try to create a kind of unity to this book is, you know, it's so much a part of the book. And it's also, I think, for the experience of reading it, it could be experience. I know some people have said that, to me, they have experienced it as a betrayal. The end of the book. Yeah, just that he doesn't, you know, that he that he's not going to resolve or or in, in any way try to make this all work together as one, you know, kind of story or not even one story but even to make any of it resolve well the one quibble i would make there is that i would say i would not say that he has failed to create kind of a a sustaining a sustained and sustaining storyline is that he's chosen to do this uh fragmented narrative thing which is not wholly successful have I already said that am I repeating myself no no I think you're, no but I mean it's it, you sort of think in the end the fragments are going to add up to some you're going to come out of the fragments with right, right, some right. larger thing right. and if you look at something like Ulysses you do right, right? Well, that's Where, a shapely thing right and it's not I mean but there are fragments but they're going to you know it's all going to cr- come together right 
Um, but this book isn't going to all, all the fragments are not going to come together. That's true. I would still I would rather read this than Underworld, which is a book that does cohere. Well, actually, I've never been able to make it to the end of Underworld, and I have given up wanting to try. Um, <laughs> whereas I'd be happy to, in, in 20 years, I'd be happy to pick this back up again. Wow, uh, you're to be the only person in the world who's read this book three times. Do you, uh, no, I'm sure that there are cults out there. There are cults out there that there have are. read this book. Um, the, the scene by scene, you know, analysis. Yeah, it's amazing the amount of stuff out there on the net about this book. It's incredible. Do you think that it's maybe actually not a novel? That it's some other kind of prose experience that needs its own name? What name would you suggest? <laughs> um, well, can I, you know, it's an interesting question because, I mean, well, obviously, you know, I mean, Don Quixote, for instance, let's just take the, you know, which is often thought of as one of the first. Don Quixote has a huge number of stories in it that have nothing to do with Quixote and Sancho, right? In fact, that they just, they're going along and they get told a story and then it's... It's and, a picaresque. Yeah, but there is, <laughs> there is, though, this kind of overarching narrative in that book mm-hmm. that kind of does kind of hold together. And, and in this book, there... There isn't quite... I mean, it's interesting that you talk about Ulysses because, I mean, the other thing I sort of vaguely think of is Hamlet. You know, you have a dead father who is eclipsed by an uncle and you have, you know, the ghost comes back at the end and da-da-da-da-da. There is a way in which there are these two kind of animating what could be father figures, Gately and... Gately's not that much older than Hal, but... And and James, who actually have this conversation near the end, um, the ghost of James and stuff. But... And, and you get this weird sort of foreshadowing that Hal and Gately are going to end up together in some way. But again, like you're just you have to work incredibly hard to to get any of that out of the book. It's just not it's not quite there. And so there is a way in which I think he just he was wanting he wanted to refuse closure. I mean, it's sort of a mm-hmm. cliche thing to say, but I think he is just trying to you know. Ref- and that's it. He's like refu- he doesn't want you to enjoy it that much, basically. In a you know, he wants to refuse a certain kind of narrative pleasure, I think. But I just, I mean, I think it's very old-fashioned and, like, um, primitive of me. But I just sometimes, somehow feel after reading, you know, after getting through the thousand pages, somewhat cheated. I think that, either Michael Peach you know, sort of... Somebody said it to him about Broom of the system. And I think they said it to him about this as well. And I think in Broom, he added, he kind of did add... Broom of the system is his first novel. He did add some closure in this. He just basically kind of rejected it. And, you know, closure makes it almost makes it sound like a sort of silly thing to want. But it's even more than closure. It's that you want all these plot lines to sort of um, amount to something or come together in some way that is satisfying. It doesn't have to be like a neat ending, you know, neat, perfect ending. Right. But just um, some sense that he didn't just stop, you know, that he didn't just... Well, can I? I mean, I, just to give him some credit. I mean, I do the Gately stuff. I do think actually, go. It's not quite closure, but it's it's the, you know. I mean, Gately, you do feel really has kind story of has a journey and, and it middle does kind that. of have an end in a way. I mean, we don't know exactly what's going to happen to him, but but that seemed reasonable. But I do think with Hal, it is especially because of the way the book begins. There is something strange because Hal, you do kind of care about in some way, and yet. You just get left with you just don't have any idea what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, my, my, my last my last. Huh? You don't doesn't seem to matter to you though, right? I mean, yeah, my my. Uh, I don't know my my last attempt at trying to equivocate on that stance. That it seems to me like the the structurally the book is kind of webbed, and is a web. Uh, less is that kind of webbing going to lead to 
conventional narrative satisfaction. No, it's not. But it's uh, it's its own sort of species of thing. Oh, and I think you said... That's interesting. I mean, you said it... I think you said best what's the ideal effect of this book, which is that you do walk out of it, you know, looking at things and thinking about things differently. And I definitely felt the same way. You know, and I, and that is a very powerful thing. It's very rare. You know, there are just very, 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 very few books, even good books, where that that have that power. So I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to um, underestimate the uniqueness of that you know, contribution or, you know, what that means. But, you know, I do, I've, I guess more than you guys, I've, I do feel like the bus effect of this book. Right. Well, I think this, I mean, I, I mean, my favorite thing that Wallace ever wrote was this, is a story that, uh, I really am not an ideal Wallace reader in any sense, but. How my, do you mean? Well, just in the sense that, that the kind of overwritten quality of it um, is, is just not my kind of cup of tea that I, and, and that, profound level of kind of doubt about every single human interaction is just I, I just don't instinctively feel it I mean I understand the sense of kind of spiritual loneliness and the sense of existential doubt and but but like Rabbit Run is much more my kind of thing in a mm-hmm. way but Everything is Green is this is this two page story that's in Girl with Curious Hair and uh, it's kind of written almost like in a I don't know almost like a kind of Gordon, early Gordon, not Gordon Lish himself, but the kind of writers that like Barry Hanna or someone. And it's, to me, the most gorgeous thing, one of the most gorgeous things I've ever read. And uh, it's just a, 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 a kind of working class, lower middle class, lower, lower working class guy talking about, he's an older guy and, and he has a, a girlfriend who's younger than he is and has cheated on him and is trying to convince him to, you know, that she didn't do anything. And it's called Everything is Green and it's so beautiful. The period Harper's, you can see it online. And I guess when I when I read Anthony Jess, I'm like, where's that guy? I want uh-huh. more of that guy that wrote Everything Is Green, and you know, I just don't think that's what Wallace was that interested. I just don't think he was that interested in that. You know, I think he was he was interested in filling this thing to the top, basically, and putting in everything he knew about the world and thought. And I mean, I you know, I agree with you. I felt like that about his nonfiction. Where's that guy? Right. You know, in a way. So, but um, but I do. I think it's definitely worth reading. You know, now that I've done it. And um, any last words on Infinite Chess? You keep putting me on the spot, Katie. Um, <laughs> I would also. You're I would, the biggest defender of this book. That's why. I, I would argue that. just not to be. If you're curious about this book, don't be intimidated by its girth. Just like pick it up in the middle and start reading, or just flip to the back and into the uh, to the end notes and just read the really good filmography. Book, I would say it's a really good insomnia book. <laughs> <because> <laughs> To put you to sleep, you mean? No. Oh, to read. To sort of when like if you happen to have these hours, these like midnight hours oh, okay, to, okay. to kill. Okay. It's a great book because it does have these sort of little perfect chunks of things. Yeah. That are going to make you feel completely at odds with the outside world, slumbering right. in the rest of the universe. So right. I think it's a really good book. <laughs> and it's sort of an interesting book for Wallace to have written because you know he sort of I think is is. Parts of him are in a lot of the different characters, and I think that's part of what he was trying to do as well. So, you know, he was a tennis prodigy himself, and but he gave it up. And you know, I think he's you know wrestling with his mother was a grammarian in real life, as as is the mother here, and you know, but then also this whole the addiction thing, which he obviously struggled with as well. And I I think it's you know I, I do think it was him putting everything he knew mm-hmm. basically in, into one thousand page book in a way. I think. And some other stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and some other uh, stuff. <laughs> So, uh, 
If nothing else, there's a consensus that we will give him an A-plus for effort? Yes, yes. definitely. No All right. No doubt. Thanks, Jim Surricki and Troy Patterson, for joining me today at Slate's Audio Book Club podcast. And we'll be back soon. If you have any comments about the Audio Book Club, send them along, won't you, to podcasts at slate.com. For Slate.com, I'm Dale Wilman.